morning, church. Uh, this morning we'll be in uh, Psalm 75. It starts by saying, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. Now, if you would, just for a moment, imagine with me that there were foreign nations who came through here, decimating our churches, erecting pagan gods and idols on our altars, slaughtering our pastors, abusing our women and children, and then putting what was remaining of us in shackles and chains and dragging us off into a foreign land where we'd be enslaved to a people who hated us and our God for the rest of our days, never to see this place here again. Now this is something of the context that we see uh, in this psalm. You see, in the 5th century uh, BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of uh, Babylon came in with his pagan armies and, and did that very thing, um, except for uh, not just single churches and God's people, he went to the epicenter of the Jewish religion, the temple, and desecrated it. And after his pagan uh, soldiers of the Babylonian Empire uh, did all the atrocities that they did there, um, they then took God's people and exiled them to be slaves in a foreign land. Exiled God's people to whom their father Abraham was promised that they would have that land so that they could be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So that a Messiah, somebody who could come and crush the serpent's head, could come through them and right every wrong. They were given this land for this purpose and they were taken out of it. And it's in this context, context that the psalmist says, we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. More than that, more than just the, the thankfulness and the inexplicable suffering and chaos that ensues there, he gives specially thanks that his name is near to them. The name of God. Now, the context to that. In the Hebrew uh, religion, if you go way back centuries before then, when Moses uh, was given revelation of God through the burning bush, when he called him out to go back into Egypt and set his people free, he asked, who should I say sent me? And the name that God gives for himself is tell them, I am sent you. God's name is I am. So when we see that he says, your name is near, he's saying you, who you are, your character, your person, your intimate, close relationship with us is near in the midst of this. You are close to us. He thanks him for his intimate nearness and involvement in the situation, in the context and not only that, he then recalls all the wondrous deeds and works that God has done for them on their behalf in the past. 
So imagine being in that suffering and saying, God, thank you for how close you are to us in this. And thank you for everything that you've done for me before. In the midst of suffering, most of us would, would probably be just, just so confused at this response. We'd say, remember yesterday's promises and salvation. What about today? What about what I'm going through right now? I have a feeling a lot of church people come in every Sunday hearing stories about what Jesus did and what God did through his people thousands of years ago in a book and said, yeah, that was great, but what about now? God has been faithful, but, but what about his faithfulness in my struggles, in the world's struggles? Do you see what's happening overseas right now? Do you see what's happening in my household right now? You don't know my story. You don't know what I'm going through. How can God be near so how can the psalmist propose that God's faithfulness in the past should carry us through sufferings of today because of a hope for tomorrow? How can this be? Well, let's move on to verse 2. It says, at the set time, moving on from, from his own perspective, he now quotes God. The psalmist quoting God says, at the set time that I appoint I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. Selah. So notice that God has not overlooked any suffering or sin or brokenness. It's not been lost on him. He has not overlooked it or been unaware of it. In fact, the reason we can look back at God's goodness and acknowledge his nearness now is because of a hope for the future that he will right every wrong. He will bring retribution to all evil. He's a promised and appointed time set to right every wrong done in the universe with justice and equity. Some of us don't want to wait that long. But as the scriptures say, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as we count slowness, right? As some count slowness. Notice it's in a set appointed time that he's planned to bring judgment. This isn't something that's lost on God where the world fell into brokenness and sin and now he's picking up the pieces where he's Got to figure out how to make good out of this mess, and he's going to do it someday. No, he has a set, appointed, ordained time to fix everything, to wipe away every tear, to steady the pillars of the earth. And because of the fall, the general rules of prosperity and purity, you know, do good things, good things happen, right? Do bad things, bad things happen, right? That, that, that's pretty much... Uh, the essence of a lot of the wisdom literature and Proverbs, right? So why doesn't it work out every time? Because we have plunged ourselves into a sinful, fallen, broken world where evil occurs. And it's because of this distortion of God's good plan that we fall further and further and further away from the truth. This is why the balance of righteousness and wickedness sways to and fro as the earth totters and suffering plagues its inhabitants. But notice 
there's a promise that this won't always be the case. And even now, you can see that God dispenses his common grace in our situations within our even world that intervenes in steadying the earth's pillars to keep it from drifting even further into chaos. Trust me, the wickedness you see in the world is wicked, but it would be far worse if God was far away and not near and not intimately involved. In this, our God is completely near, intimately close in our suffering, completely in control, which is why the psalmist can say, we give thanks for your name is near in the midst of utter chaos. We do not serve a false deistic God who's simply a clock winder who created the world, watched it fall into sin and say, you know what, I don't want any part of that anymore. I want to step away. Let, let, let what's going to be done be done here. Abandoning it to fall into ruin and chaos eternally. No, even in the midst of a fallen, sinful, and broken world, he is intimately involved, completely in control, and incredibly near. As the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed spirit, the crushing weight of sin on this world that has broken us, God is near. Moving on to verse 4. He goes on to say, I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. You see, God has this promised day where he will bring judgment to the wicked and, and make everything new and right again as he designed. But in the meantime, we look around and it looks as if evil is winning. We see the wicked winning, the evil encouraged, and the arrogance of sin exalted. That haughty neck, it's a symbol of a stiff-necked arrogance of I'm going to be in my sin, I'm going to bring destruction to the earth, and I don't care. The horn, it's a symbol of pride, of victory, the enemy appearing to have won in this present age. God says, no, boastful, do not boast. Don't boast. Wicked, don't lift up your horn. You think that you've exalted yourself in this short lifespan that you have? Don't you know that's from me comes any exalting at all? Where God gives assurance for his people's victory and all things being made right in the prior verses, here he gives a reassurance to the wicked of their demise despite the delusions they have of victory in this life. God gives the reminder that he is sovereign over even the wicked's current temporary victories and exaltations. And even more than this, he is sovereign over their ultimate defeat during the appointed time of judgment he set and will bring to pass. God puts down one and he lifts up another. 
God's people will be lifted up. The lowly, the lowly in heart, the broken in spirit, the contrite, those who humble themselves will be exalted. And it is completely worth it. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory that is to be revealed to us. So, the lowly will be lifted up, and the wicked, the exalted, will be brought low on this day of judgment. And in the meantime, God is steadying the pillars, orchestrating it exactly the way it needs to be. And on that day of judgment, when he returns, he will pour his wrath on his enemies and give blessings to his people. But what does this wrath look like? How does the word describe this wrath? Let's look at verse 8. Scripture says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. All the way. They'll drink it down till it's empty. Here we see a picture of that set appointed time that he promises to come and fulfill his word to make everything right. To punish the wicked, to bless the humble, and to make the universe go according to his good design again. And he describes this day as a pouring out of his wrath being a cup of wine well mixed and foaming. What's really interesting about that is that wine is oftentimes presented as a blessing. It's oftentimes used as an instrument of celebration and rejoicing. Jesus' first miracle ever in his ministry was turning water into wine to celebrate a marriage, right? How fitting. But here, it's presented as wrath. And not only is it just wine, it's well mixed and foaming. It's, it's the good stuff. It's not box wine, if you will. It's the real deal. And something that so obviously seems like a blessing, something to celebrate with, he uses as a symbol of wrath. I don't think it's a stretch to show that even in our current life, we drink down what we think are God's blessings that are really his wrath on us. We think riches, notoriety, pride, worldly success, favor among men, but not God. We think all the things that make us happy in the temporary sense, but have nothing to do with true religious affections for our Father. And we see all those things as what makes life worth living. So when we lose them, then we lose our faith in God. We say all these worldly things, all these treasures that really satisfy my heart, those are the things that are most valuable to me. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that God's wrath a lot of the times looks like giving 
you exactly what your heart desires that keeps you from him. When you have the world, you lack the sight, the vision for your need for God. When you have everything your heart desires, you don't think you need God. And in this way, we are all, we, every one of us, are guilty of sin that separates God. We prefer the cup. We prefer wrath. We prefer punishment because we are deluded by sin that tells us it is better than God's grace. The insanity of sin is that it causes us to willingly and happily, under delusion, drink down the wrath of God our whole lives. And in this way, we don't fall into that blessing category from earlier. We fall under the arrogance, the haughty necks. We fall under the, the wicked with their horns, the boasts who are boastful, the boastful who boast, rather. We all have separated ourselves from God because we prefer the cup to the creator. We prefer the wrath over the blessing. And we count what's really important in our lives, what's going on right now that can help our temporary satisfactions and pleasures, all while forsaking our true satisfaction in our Father. Sin is insanity. And in fact, there's only been one person throughout all of human history who has ever been able to recognize this cup for the soul-crushing wrath of God that it really was. If we go to Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, we see Jesus Christ knowing he's shortly going to be betrayed and go to the cross to die for the sins of man. He goes to the garden to pray to his father, to commune, to prepare himself for what's going to take place. And while he's there, it says, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Father, this cup, if it's possible at all, don't make me drink it down. If there's any other way, don't make me drink it. You see, this is a strange thing hearing from Jesus at first at least, right? That he would rather the cup pass from him? Why did Jesus say this? What was in this cup that caused the Son of God to sweat blood from his very brow? What was in this cup that caused his soul to be troubled to the point of death? God incarnate, troubled with anxiety and trembling, falling on his knees, praying to his Father. 
because of what was in this cup. You see, there have been plenty of martyrs throughout Christian history. There have been plenty of people who have died for the sake of the gospel. Many of them were glad to do so, happy, singing, rejoicing, running on the way to their cross to bear. They did not cry out and say, God, let this cup pass from me. But Jesus says, let this cup pass from me. Were Jesus' followers more courageous, bold, brave, faithful than he? Is that what we're going to dare to say? No. This is because the cup that every Christian martyr throughout church history has ever drank was the wrath of man who can only destroy the body but cannot touch the soul. And when you know that your true life is hidden in Christ in eternity past in heaven in the Father's bosom right now, then you're willing to give up this body of sinful flesh like that. What was in the cup that Jesus drank down for us, though, was the almighty wrath of the Father. This is the only way the gospel makes sense. If we are sinful and deserving of God's wrath, then we need somebody to take our place to have salvation. We need somebody to take that wrath for us. I propose to you that Jesus was not fearful simply of what the Roman soldiers would do to his body, though his horrific, horrendous, and blasphemous death was completely necessary. The shedding of blood, the atonement for our sins, the wrath that he drank in the cup was one of a spiritual wrath that the Father poured out on him so that he could pour out his grace on us who don't deserve it. He was not afraid. It was a spiritual wrath. It was, it was wrath from God and not from man. Wrath of God for the judgment of sins for all who would believe in his name. Christ was the only person in human history to recognize this cup of wrath for what it truly was. The same cup that we willingly even pray to God for. God, give me this, then I'd be happy. God, do this in my life, and then I'll praise you. Then I'll get back in church, or, or then I'll do this. Then, then I'll, I'll stop doing this sin. God, give me these things, which ultimately steal our hearts away from God. And we love the wrath of God in this temporal, deluded, delusional, sinful world. But Jesus recognized this cup for what it was. But this is not all that Jesus said. Let it pass. Thank the Lord. Continuing, he courageously and selflessly says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And in that case, 
the Son of God incarnate, went to the cross, had his beard pulled out by the same people who he spoke into existence and gave life. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the creator of everything. He's the creator preeminent God. The same glands that he put into the human body that would make the saliva that spits in his face and mocks him. The, the same hands that he created to, to beat him while he was masked, while the Roman soldier said, if you're such a prophet, then tell us which one of us hit you. The same people he created would force him on a cross and make him carry it up to that hill on Golgotha and die for the sins of the world. And he would do it out of his love for us because he wanted to take our place. He said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And in doing this, Christ became the once and for all sacrifice and propitiator of God's wrath so that his righteousness would be given to us on judgment day and our wickedness was placed on him. So that by faith in him, we might be made the righteousness of God. This is the gospel. None of us can earn God's favor. None of us can make ourselves right for him. No amount of church attendance, service, being a good person, whatever that means. We all have our own subjective spectrum of what goodness is. None of that. It all falls short of the glory of God. God requires purity for relationship with him for eternity in his presence. And the only one who was pure was Jesus Christ. And he was pure on our behalf, dying for us so that we could live for him. Taking our place so that we could be in communion with him forever. Moving on to verse 9. The psalmist continues to say, but I will declare it. Forever, I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I'll cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. But for those who believe, who are too easily satisfied with the mirage of blessings, false exaltations, and wickedness in this life apart from him, this cup will be revealed as the wrath it really is to those who don't believe in his name. All the things they thought were more precious to God in this life, who they said, no, this is worth more than the gospel. This is better than grace. Give me this. Give me this. On the day of judgment, the set appointed time where he will come back, there will be wrath in its full exposure in the light of its entire glory, poured out on the wicked. But for those who believe, all will be made right. And we will be lifted up on the righteousness freely given to us by grace through faith in Christ's sacrifice. This gives meaning to every single tear, every suffering, every apparent victory that the enemy has in this life. We know that it is just but for a time. And the same Christ who died on our behalf and resurrected, raised from the dead on the third day and sitting at the right hand of the Father will come back 
and restore everything to himself. And all those found in him who believe in him will be with him for eternity. They will be blessed. They will have the righteousness of God and they shall be lifted up. All will be made right and we will declare it forever to the tune of the praise of our almighty, sovereign, gracious Redeemer. Let's pray.